Well, I'm no film buff, but I've been thinking recently that, um, from my amateur perspective, that um, many, uh, many films are written to a formula to ensure success. And perhaps some of the most successful are the ones which have the mixture of romance and action in. Being very stereotypical, one will appeal to women and one will appeal to men. Now, the romance can, of course, be sweet and innocent. It can be naughty, but with the temptation to think it's nice. Or it can be torrid and destructive. Action can have comparatively few casualties or considerable. Death can look like falling off a horse in a 1950s western with no blood, even though they're supposed to have been shot off. Or you can be deluged with half an hour of blood and gore at the beginning of Saving Private Ryan. Depending on where on the spectrum the balance is between the romantic and the heroic aspects, that determines um, its popularity with the sexes. The near-perfect balance between romance and warfare was probably Pearl Harbor in 2001 with Ben Affleck and Kate Beckinsale. On the chick flick spectrum, it may be something like Casablanca in 1943, starring Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. Although it was in wartime for real, it was set in Morocco, which was neutral, supposedly. But when a married woman encounters a long-lost love, Old wounds are reopened and sparks fly. And then there's the perfect man's film. Many were produced in the 1960s and are constantly rebroadcast today. Bridge Over the River Kwai, 633 Squadron, Where Eagles Dare, The Guns of Navarone, The Great Escape. And perhaps the most iconic of all Zulu, based on an incident in 1879 during the Anglo-Zulu War when around 150 British and colonial troops successfully held off an assault by over 4,000 Zulus, part of a Zulu army which the day before had completely annihilated a 4,000-strong force of British troops. Imagine that you are one of those 150. You are well aware of what is coming your way. You've heard of the massacre. You hear the Zulus chanting. You hear them beating rhythmically their shields. And you know that no one is coming to your rescue. Time to turn to God, I think as the colour sergeant in Zulu is urged to do. And here's a clip from the film in which the Swiss missionary, played by Jack Hawkins, no relation, <laughs> who has turned to drink in this time of crisis and who they've locked up in the store. As that colour sergeant born, recalling the psalms of his childhood, taught to him by his lay preacher father, says of Psalm 46... Might have, been well, might have well been written for a soldier. And it probably was. 
The original context was evidently some notable deliverance of Jerusalem from the attack of one of its heathen neighbours. Jerusalem, the city of God, was the place on earth where God's presence was symbolically in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, right in the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem had escaped uh, destruction on a number of occasions. But the situation envisaged in the psalm together with certain resemblances in terms of metaphors used and phrases used, is very close to the book of Isaiah and the prophecies that are in that. And that suggests that the setting was in 701 BC, when the Assyrian army led by Sennacherib was at the gates of Jerusalem and all looked as frightening as it must have looked to those soldiers in that little place in Rourke's Drift. Although Hezekiah was king of Judah, he's what's called a vassal state. It meant that so long as kind of Hezekiah and Judah sort of, you know, paid their tribute regularly to the king of Assyria, he would leave them alone. Keep up the payments or your house is in danger of being lost, as the mortgage statements uh, say. And Hezekiah was tempted. You see, Sennacherib um, of Assyria had a pretty massive empire that stretched from the borders of Egypt right across to where is the kind of Iran today and everything in between. And he had a bit of bother on his eastern borders at the time, and so Sennacherib of Judah and in fact, um, whoever the pharaoh of Egypt was at the time, um, they took the opportunity. They thought, I'm not sending him any money, he can't do anything about getting it. Well, they were sadly mistaken, because in time, Sennacherib sent an army of 200,000 to sort them out. It was like a blitzkrieg. A blitzkrieg is the word used when the Germans kind of stormed into Poland, when they stormed into the Benelux countries at the start of World War II, an almighty onslaught. I remember as a child going to Madame Tussauds and going downstairs to the Chamber of Horrors and seeing a model display of Assyrian troops in battle. They were incredibly cruel. They, for example, they would lay down the prisoners they captured on the ground, flat, and run plowshares over them to cut them into bits. Particularly nasty. And just as the Assyrians had 20 years before, when King Zargon II had stormed and overrun the northern kingdom centred on Samaria, so too they were about to do the same to Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah. The Assyrian reliefs, that's the wall carvings that were in the palace of Nineveh and are now in the British Museum, they depict the siege and destruction of Lachish, which is a small city to the southwest of Jerusalem. And then, having uh, squashed Lachish, the army moved towards the gates of Jerusalem, like the irresistible waves of the tide coming to envelop a sandcastle 
before its inevitable destruction. And Sennacherib boasted that he had shut up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. It's in his annals, it's on his prism, a clay tablet with a record of these uh, campaigns, which again, we're looking after in the British Museum. This is what the field commander, Sennacherib's field commander, who goes up to the gates of Jerusalem says. It's 2 Kings 18, 19 to 25 if you want to uh, follow, but I'll read it. The field commander said to them, tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says on what you are basing, says, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have the counsel and the might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed? Saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this place without word from the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Well, the field commander knows where to kind of hit hard. Egypt was a pretty spent force at that time. It was not in its kind of on the up. It was definitely on the down. No point trusting that they're going to defend you. Hezekiah wasn't popular with the people in the countryside because he had shut down all their altars and concentrated religion in Jerusalem. It doesn't seem that he's got very many soldiers, does it, if uh, the field commander sort of jets, if you can put 2,000 uh, men on them. That suggests that he's only got 2,000 soldiers defending the place. And he's right. Isaiah the prophet had said that the Lord would raise up the Assyrians to punish his people. They must have felt pretty gutted. And Hezekiah, when this was reported to him, 2 Kings 19.1, tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went to the temple of the Lord. He feared death and destruction would be imminent. 200,000 almost against 2,000, if you're lucky. He's desperate, so desperate, he said, he sent a delegation to Isaiah the prophet, who he'd previously not listened to much. Well, he'd listened, but he'd not heard, or heard and not listened, whichever way round it is. 
He didn't uh, go with it. Maybe he thought he could put a good word in for me to the Lord. We all have friends like that, don't we? You know, they pay sort of quite a lot of disregard to thinking about life and about the veracity of the Christian faith. But when they're in a fix, they'll maybe ask you, their Christian friend, if you can put in a good word. Well, Isaiah's message from the Lord to the king, Hezekiah, 2 Kings 19.6. Tell your master, Hezekiah, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, I'm going to put such a spirit in him, that's Sennacherib, that when he hears a certain report, he will return to his own country and there I will have him cut down with the sword. So two predictions by Isaiah there from the Lord. The first that Sennacherib would leave without destroying Jerusalem. And interestingly, although there's bucket loads of stuff about his campaign in the West at that particular time in his annals and on those reliefs which take up a massive amount of wall space in the British Museum, more than the four walls in here, there is no mention of ever capturing Jerusalem. And secondly, that Sennacherib will go back to Nineveh and will be killed. So what happened? Hezekiah received Isaiah's message and went to the temple to pray. 2 Kings 18, 14. He acknowledges that the Lord is the only true God. In other words, Hezekiah is now coming to his senses. This adverse, this situation which was hopeless, that he knows he can't do anything about, he turns to God, the only true God. And he notices that other nations have fallen to the Assyrians because their trust was in themselves and in their false gods. He reminds the Lord that Sennacherib has insulted the true God, belittling him. And Hezekiah prays, verse 19, Now, O Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, our God. And the Lord's reply, verse 34, I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. In other words, God's honour is really important. He wants to be recognised throughout the world. And he made a special promise, a covenant with David and before him with Moses, that he is going to use this people to reach that world and nothing will stop him from doing so. So suddenly and dramatically something the secular historian Herodotus also mentions. God intervenes, 2 Kings 19.35. That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp, maybe cholera. When the people got up the next morning, there were all dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshipping in the temple of his god Nishroch, 
His sons, Adram, Melech, and Sharazar, killed him with the sword. And they escaped the land of Ararat, and Esarhaddon, his son, succeeded him as kings. Both prophecies of Isaiah came true, one immediately, and the other 20 years later, in 681 BC. Conclusion, you don't mess with the living God and get away with it. Well, the psalm. As you can see, Colour Sergeant Bourne, you can see why he thought this was a soldier's psalm. You are in a real fix, with the odds horribly against you. 26 to 1 at Rourke's Drift, 100 to 1 at Jerusalem. Your only hope is that God is on your side. And this psalm comes from that time, maybe inspired by Isaiah himself. We don't know. And the psalm's in three parts. First is just a general confidence in the power and providence of God. Then there's this particular experience of it in the deliverance of the city. And lastly, there's an assurance that the Lord will establish his universal kingdom of peace. Now, interestingly, the second and the third stanzas of this song are followed by a refrain. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, in verse 7 and 11. Well, the demands of poetic symmetry, I've read, suggest that the same refrain originally must have uh, concluded the first stanza, too, after verse 3. Well, the song's not only about God's protection, but he is our fortress, and he is both powerful, the Lord Almighty, and he is the faithful God of Jacob, who is bound to his people in this solemn covenant. You know, his plans will not be frustrated. So the general confidence, verses 1 to 3, the songwriter affirms that God is our refuge and strength, and an ever-present help in times of trouble. It's this confidence that enables him to add, almost in defiance, therefore we will not fear. Even the worst convulsions of nature, earthquakes, storms, tempests, these things are terrifying. The great Lisbon earthquake of 1755, which probably saw 100,000 people in southern Portugal and uh, Morocco killed, sent shockwaves literally throughout Europe and beyond. The cathedral, which is a sort of built over and incorporating a mosque in Cordoba, which is 500 kilometers from Lisbon, cracked. A tsunami resulted because this epicentre was just um, 100 miles southwest of Lisbon or so. The, the tsunami is recorded in the Caribbean and in Cornwall. I've never experienced an earthquake, but I have missed one by four days, which killed 10,000 people. One of my lives used up. I've experienced storms in the winter of 1973. I lived in an island off the northwest coast of Scotland in the Hebrides. To be out on a launch that is only 40 foot long 
in a fourth, eight or nine storm turns the mind heavenwards, I can tell you. Such forces of nature are terrifying, but they need not make us afraid. God is with us. A special experience then, verse 4 to 7. In contrast to the sea whose waters roar and foam, the songwriter now mentions other calmer waters, those of a river whose streams make glad the city of God, verse 4. If you've ever had the good fortune to go to the Holy Land, you know that it, in the summer particularly, is hot. Jerusalem last summer was in the early 40s centigrade for much of uh, the summer. The Dead Sea was 49 degrees centigrade. The ground is dry and dusty. Flowing water is incredibly rare. In Jerusalem, flowing water is confined to the spring of Gishon and the pool of Siloam, which are connected by a pretty long tunnel um, constructed by Hezekiah's engineers who chiseled it out by hand. Imagine on a, in that hot, dry, dusty, thirsty, dirty environment you come across clean, clear, fresh, flowing water. It might only be knee-deep, but it's refreshing it's reinvigorating. Isaiah wrote of such in 8.6, the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, waters for their refreshment. And he contrasted those with the mighty flood of the waters of the Assyrian Euphrates that will overrun the whole country. He's using imagery from rivers to show what politically will happen. The symbol of refreshing, life-giving waters reappears in the visions of both Ezekiel, Ezekiel 47, where it is an expectation of the future, and Revelation 22, 1 to 5, where it is a realization of that future. If you are in that kind of Middle Eastern uh, climate, you know, oases, that's the word for paradise in Persian, it's where we get uh, it from. You know, the, 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 the prospect of water flowing fresh, lush, and the greenery in contrast to the aridity of the desert and its almost sterility is very powerful for them. Well, under God's gracious rule, his city is made glad, verse 4, and simply cannot fall because God is within her to protect and help her, verse 5. Let the nations roar like the sea, the kingdoms quake like the mountains. The same verbs are used in verse 6 as had been used of nature in verses 2 and 3. And yet God has only to speak, and the earth melts before him. And then a final assurance. The songwriter calls the people to take note of God's decisive intervention in the protection of Jerusalem and the desolation of her foes, verse 8. This divine deliverance is seen as a pledge or a foretaste of the day when God will finally overthrow all warring factions and establish a kingdom of peace. 
He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire, verse 9. Again, echoes of Isaiah, who in Isaiah 2.4 says, They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Or 9.5, where military boots and blood-stained battle dress will be used as fuel for fires. God has made his promise, and now there is a pause for thought. God himself, the guarantor of that promise, speaks, and he says, Be still, and know that I am God. It takes crises like that for people to kind of recognise their place in relation to the Lord Almighty. This is not a verse in which we are encouraged to empty our brains, but rather we are to recall what he has done and what he has promised he will do. He spoke and the Assyrians fell, verse 6. It will be his voice that pacifies all people. He is God forever and is already being exalted in the earth. His majestic affirmation prompts his people to respond with the refrain, the Lord Almighty is with us. Again, an echo from Isaiah and the great prophecy of Emmanuel. God is with us. Well, today in our world, we look around and we look at the political and social kind of chaos that goes on. Syria and Iraq are probably the last places on earth anybody would want to live. It's full of anarchy, chaos, factions, fighting factions, devastating destruction, appalling cruelty, the most horrible things done by some on others. And yet somehow Christians survive there. Many of them are wise enough to leave, but others stay. They know their God is with them. They know he wants a people present throughout the world. Today in our country there is greater social instability than there once was. Sixty years ago we were poorer, but we were more stable as a country. Life was more precious than today when life can be so routinely terminated. The elderly are seen as an inconvenience and a waste of resources, and there is a great temptation to bump them off. When there is uh, also temptation to trade in not just your car, but your spouse, all these attitudes are so callous so dehumanising. They result in social isolation, mental illness, and bad examples passed on from one generation to the next to be not only repeated, but sadly amplified. If you think about the future, can secularism, Islam and Christianity live in harmony? The strains internationally on the demands for water and energy will result in mass movements of people, if not wars over such resources. If we pause for thought, we live in worrying times. We don't know how things will pan out for our children and grandchildren. 
worrying times, perhaps even fearful times. But God today lives in his church. His church cannot be destroyed. We, as individual believers, cannot be destroyed. We can certainly be killed, but we can't die because we have a future with the Christ who is in us. We are able to say we will not fear if we believe those other affirmations from the song, I am God and the Lord Almighty is with us. Many of us born since the 1950s have lived in a very easy period of British history in many respects. Those of you who were born before the Second World War can remember that just 21 miles away from Dover, the Nazi armies massed to invade in 1940. And although they were stopped then, towards the last few months of the war, if you lived in Kent and uh, London, there was a deluge of doodle bugs that flew over, and then when the engine stopped, they nosedived. They were flying bombs, but the V2 rockets were pretty enormous and created great havoc and devastation. Imagine what might have happened if the Allied forces hadn't reached the launching areas in northern Germany in time. I guess that psalms like this, Psalm 46, were a source of strength and reassurance in such uncertain times. May they also be true for the generations of Christians that come after us. God is our strength and refuge. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen.